Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Recorded live. And just lay it down. And keep. Now it's recording. This is still not coming up. We may have to maybe log back down. Refresh this first. May have to log back. Now this if it if it uh sometimes it goes in and out so we know like if it disconnects. You ain't gonna really have the problem with this phone. It was doing that with my phone and that's uh, why we switched well, over well, to her phone. Okay, this time it's come up, so it worked to just refresh the main page and then you know, once I refresh that main page, then I re-clicked. Okay. And right now you can see AJ and Kiki. Next step is you want to block chat, continue, and that way nobody can be typing in here because if we don't block the chat, any troublemaker could come in here while you're not paying attention, while I'm not paying attention because you're listening to the services and I'm mm-hmm. preaching, and they could buy blah, blah, and cuss words and try to, teach all kinds of false doctrines and everything. So we want to block chat during services, okay? And then this right here shows <clears throat> that what is blocked is, the here's the computer line, here's the phone line. It'll show that AJ and Kiki is both blocked from chatting on the computers, and anybody else that comes into the room will be blocked from chatting on the computers. They will all have that on there. And then if they're on a telephone, it will show uh, the blue telephone icon will be lit up to let us know that they're calling over the telephone, okay, and they will be muted as well. So you can tell that these people are on a computer because only the computers are muted. If they was on the phone, then the phones would be muted. Makes sense. Okay. So we're recording. And hello, Sister Kiki, Brother AJ, Sister Lisa, Brother Jonathan, other people that will be listening later in the day to the archives because of technical reasons. They're not able to listen live because it doesn't work well or they're not able to figure it out. So the other people, and if they're listening directly from the website, they're not going to show on here, but they may be listening. So this doesn't guarantee that we see ever listening. Okay, so today I'm teaching Brother Michael how to take over the electronic part of broadcasting, that we're going to start our worship services now. So give us a minute while we start the music and let's all worship together, whether whether you are listening at home, live, or in the archives, we encourage you to join us in worship before we do the actual prayer. The worship is just as important as the sermon itself. Amen.
in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, in your glorious and holy name of Jesus Christ, we pray. We thank you, Father, for the breath of life today, for sunshine, cloud, or rain, that we have another day to live and to praise your name. We ask you, Father, that you would grant us now understanding of your word as we listen to this sermon today, that you would convict us of our sins, that you would help us to confess our sins to you and to one another, and that we would examine ourselves deeply enough and sincerely enough to know the truth about whether we are saved and even if we are saved, that whether we are in the center of your will or not, that we would come to truly understand these things, that you would help us to understand these things, to see us, to see ourselves the way you see us, that we would see our faults and our weaknesses, our sins and our transgressions, that we would see these things within ourselves with your help, with the conviction of our sins, that we may confess and repent so that we prepare for Passover and that we truly get to be in the fullness of your kingdom, turn to spirit, have eternal life, truly be saved, that we get these first initial steps correctly of repentance and confession and surrender to We ask you, Father, to help us to embrace your will and not ours. Thank you, Father, for what you're about to do. We ask you, Father, to open our ears, our hearts, and our minds. Help us to be alert to your word, conscious of your word, listening and receiving and embracing of your word for today. Let this not be a word for today only but for the rest of our lives, that this word today would change our lives. We ask you, Father, your will be done in this, according to your will. In Jesus' name, so be it. Amen. Praise Jesus. Let's start... In 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11, Book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, verse 28. This is April the 28th, 2018 AD, in the year of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I forgot to look what day of the month it is in God's calendar, but that's okay. Today, 
as usual, I'm going to be very bold and very frank with you. Very frank, in case that phrase or that word is not well known, either in Australia or Korea or both or Nigeria or wherever you may be listening. Very frank means to be straight up front, honest, bold, and up front with you, not holding back. Very frank with you. And, you know, I'm always like that, but I think I will be so much more today. And I realize I may lose people. But my goal is to win your salvation for Christ. To bring you into the center of his will. That he would put more of his spirit in you. That you would be more pleasing to him. That you would be ready for the resurrection and for eternal life. Those are my goals. Not to offend, but if I offend, so be it. Not to step on people's toes, but if I step on people's toes, so be it. But what is a few broken toes compared to eternal life? Amen. And whether I step on your toes or whether it be somebody else's, what each person should be doing in the sermons every week, every person, should always be listening for the word of God for themselves. I may have somebody else in mind, but each person should be examining themselves about whether each statement is concerning them or not. Whether you're guilty, whether you're innocent, that you be willing to receive conviction of the Holy Ghost if you are guilty of the same offense without my knowledge. Many times I don't really base the sermon upon one person alone, but really many people, and more so and more often about what God puts into me and not what I believe needs to be said. But a pastor does also have the blessing of the Lord to address issues that is known, issues that I do see that needs to be addressed. I do have that permission. I do have that blessing. I don't always have to hear lightning and thunder. I don't always have to see a rainbow or the number three or the number seven or the number 22. I don't always have to have a confirmation from God or a revelation from God or a word from the Lord, but rather sometimes it can be the privilege of the pastor to address issues that need to be addressed. And if the Holy Ghost lives in me and the Holy Ghost reveals things to me and shows me things and shows that the correction must be made, then isn't that the same thing as receiving a word from the Lord if the Holy 
Ghost in me is what reveals those things and leads me constantly and should be leading you constantly. Amen. I do not say whether I receive a word from the Lord today or whether I'm using pastoral privilege today, I do not say. But nevertheless, I make these statements for your edification. The boldness that I use today is out of love, not of the spirit of condemnation, but of the spirit of correction by love, for love, for your salvation. And the topic today is, am I saved? And that is what each one of us need to be asking ourselves today as we prepare for Passover, the day after tomorrow, or maybe even tomorrow for some time zones. Am I saved? That's what each one of us need to be asking ourselves. And it may be a knee-jerk reaction to immediately say, of course, I'm saved. I don't know if that phrase, if that saying, knee-jerk reaction is, I don't know if anybody knows what that means in Korea or Australia because I know they have different swings in different parts of the world. But a knee-jerk reaction is an immediate, uncontrolled Reaction, immediate, spontaneous, spontaneous, and uncontrollable because it's your natural instinct to do it. It should not be a knee-jerk reaction or a spontaneous, uncontrolled response to immediately say, of course, I'm saved, but rather the goal of this season is to deeply, deeply and sincerely take a close inspection on your heart, your mind, your attitude, your condition of thinking, your condition of life, the state of your soul, the way God sees it, not the way you see it. It is to, at this time of life, at this time of the year, to open up, cut away, and dissect upon your inner heart, spiritual. Amen. There are many, 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 many people who go to churches, believe in God, try to live right, and they believe with all of their heart, with all of their mind, that they are saved. And we know that they're not because they still live like the devil and they still worship the devil unknowingly in their pagan holidays. And they are not saved, but they believe it with all of their mind, with all of their heart, with all of their being. What if we're the same way? 
what if we are just like them and have not gone deep enough in our subconscious to really examine whether we are saved? We don't want to be like them. We don't want to assume things, but prove all things, even prove your salvation. And the scriptures say that we should examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. And Paul said that to church people, church people, people who were going to church on the seventh day, keeping the holy days, and was in a a congregation of truth, a church of truth, but yet he, he still told those people to examine themselves or test themselves to see if they were in the faith, meaning are you safe? We just ran that advertisement on the Google search engines for people to type in on the Google search engine how to get saved, how to be saved. We just ran that advertisement to reach out into the world to help people realize how to be saved. But what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and lose his own soul? Amen. That is in Scripture. So it's not enough just to try to reach the world. We need to examine whether we are truly, truly in the faith. Amen. And I've said it many times over and over and over again, that you can be baptized and go to church on the seventh day and keep all the holy days and keep all the law and still not truly be saved. That's possible. So let's go over a few things. And first, let's go over a couple of verses that prove here that we need to examine ourselves. And then let's talk about some of those steps and some of the ways of examining ourselves, what we need to look at. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28. But a person must, must examine himself, not just other people, himself. And and in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. So it's very clear there that you are not to take communion without doing this examination of yourself. Amen. But he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. And I've said many times that the body is the, is the entire church and who you're taking communion with. Are you taking communion with the cup of the devil or with the true church? But it's not just others. The verse before it said yourself. Amen. So it's also talking about judging yourself rightly. Amen. Because you're part of the body just like we are. So if you do judge your brother and sister, you have to judge yourself first. Amen. Don't judge hypocritically, right? You have to judge yourself first. Remove the beam out of your own eye first before trying to remove splinters from, from somebody else's eye. Amen. We have to judge our own body, our own flesh, our own heart, our own mind first before we can examine anybody else that is with us in the congregation. Amen. 
Let's look at the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 13. 2 Corinthians 13. Verse 5 and 6. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5 and 6. Test yourself. That word test can be translated either way, examine or test. Yourself to see if, to see if you are in the faith. That is the verse I was talking about a while ago. Paul speaking to people going to church, keeping the seventh day, keeping the holy days. These are church members. But he, uh, he told them, to test themselves about whether they're really saved. That's exactly what he was saying. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail this testing, this self-examination? He's, he's saying, examine yourself to see if Jesus Christ is in you. You can keep the seventh day and still not be saved. If Jesus Christ, his spirit, his Holy Ghost, is the soul of the one that died but is still alive, if his ghost is not in us, we are not saved. And then we fail the test. Verse 6, but I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Amen. Now let's go to the book of Luke, Luke 14. If you have the five-volume edition, it's page number 80, Luke 14. Verse 26 through 33. Luke 14, verses 26 through verse 33. Luke 14, verse 26. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me, this is Jesus talking, if anyone comes to me and is not willing to, if and when necessary, forsake his own dad and mom and wife and children and brothers and sisters, your entire family, and even though it doesn't say it, even your friends, because if, if Jesus is saying you got to be willing to forsake your entire family, even your marriage, even your parents, 
even your siblings, then <laughs> common sense also says even your friends, amen. If you're not willing to forsake everybody is what he's really saying, not just family, anybody, everyone. If you're not willing to be alone, if you're not willing to forsake people and disfellowship from people because of the truth, because of him, and even your own life, if it came down to it, which it will, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually for every one of us, not just physically in martyrdom, but spiritually giving up your life to become dead to who you was and dead to your own will and your own desires and alive in Christ. Baptism is supposed to be your crucifixion. Baptism is supposed to be your funeral and your new birth on the same day. When you go down under the water, you are crucified with Christ. When you come up out of the water, you are risen in Christ as a new person. And the old is dead, and that's why we do not celebrate carnal, fleshly, birthdays is because if we are saved, that old person in the flesh is spiritually crucified and no longer exists. We celebrate a new birthday from that day forward, the day that he was born the second time. If we in this generation, are born a second time through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then why do we think that other people will not also be risen a second time? Amen. That's the only way you can be saved if you have not come unto Jesus in the first life is to come to him in the second life. Amen. That we must be willing to forsake our life. And in the context, forsaking our own life, even by giving up where we live, if need be, and our family, if need be. And if your family does not embrace the truth, then the need, the need be is reality for you. That you should forsake your brother, your mom, your wife, your husband, your friend, your sister, your brother, if they are antichrist, which means they keep the demonic, pagan, satanic, evil holidays of Satan, and you have spoken about these things with them or given them the flyers or the articles or the links 
and they outright rejected it and trampled underfoot the word of God in order for them to hold on to Satanism. They may be your wife, your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, but if they are followers of Satan, they are no family of ours. And they are not worthy of our friendship. Amen. What fellowship does light have with darkness? And you say that, Pastor Tim, my situation is different. No, it's not. No, it's not. You either accept this verse and this truth, or you don't. And if you don't, I am very worried about your eternal faith. You may be saved right now, but that doesn't guarantee that you will still be saved on the day of his appearance. We examine ourselves every year not just once like Babylon does, halfway does, not even half, not even a fraction. But they examine themselves, if they do it all, one time. And we do it every year to re-examine, re-examine, and re-examine, readjust and realign our hearts and our minds to the truth, to the Spirit of God, and to His will. Amen. I have forsaken my own family, my own mom. I did forsake because of her sins and her wickedness. I forsake my own dad because of his wickedness, my brother because of his wickedness, my uh, nephew because of his wickedness, some friends because of theirs, other family members because of theirs. So I'm not asking you to do anything that I wouldn't do myself. And I understand that some people are closer to their families than other people. But that makes no difference at all. Don't make no difference. I don't care if you have been extremely close to your parents, family, and friends from the day you was born and it's been all kissy-dovey and no heartache. I don't care if it's been a perfect love, love, love relationship. The truth is still the truth. If they have trampled the word of God underfoot, they are not worthy of your blessing, of your greeting, of your emails, of your text message, of your phone calls, uh, of your handshake, or of your hugs or caressing.
lot of people say, Pastor Tim, you're too cool and unloving. You say that based upon what I have said today, then that accusation is not truly against me, but against Christ Jesus. Amen. What you're really saying is that Christ Jesus is unloving and cruel. Because it's his commandment, it is his teaching, it is his truth, it is his reality. I'm only a mailman, only a messenger of this word. It says right here in scripture, can you see it? Can you see or are you blind? Can you see it? That if you're not willing to forsake these people, then it says right here that he cannot be my disciple, my follower. It cannot be. cannot be. Do you love somebody in the flesh who is a sinner? Do you love them more than you love Christ Jesus? I think the answer is yes for some people that are listening to this. Examine your own self. Don't say, oh, that's for the other person. But rather examine your own self. Could this be true about yourself? Everybody is always, always, always wanting to say, no, that's not me. Someone else he's talking about. No, it's you. Amen. And in verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And that means it is hard to carry that big old giant cross on your back. It is a heavy burden to disfellowship from people, to give up your life, your will, your wants, your desires, your way of thinking. It's hard to be crucified. Being crucified hurts. Amen. It's not saying one prayer, one prayer does not crucify you. Amen. And baptism does not crucify you if you're not willing to examine yourself and profess your sins. Amen. Verse 28, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tire, Let's not sit down first and count the cost to see if he has enough to finish it. In other words, if you're going to build something, you see how much money you've got, whether you've got enough money to, to finish that building from the ground up all the way to completion. If you don't have enough money, you don't build it. Except for a lot of fools today that will invest thousands or millions of dollars for a house that never even gets finished because they never sit down to finish counting the cost. Or rather, they could finish it and then they just blew all that. People actually do that. And then in verse 29, otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to really cool him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish 
For what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 people to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Amen. Verse 32, or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple. Who does not give up all of his own possessions? And you say, well, that's not literal. Well, actually, truth is, according to many other verses, this is literal. And it is something that Hardly no one is willing to do. They're not willing to give up their house, their family, their friends, their car, their furniture, their land. They're not willing to give up carnal, materialistic things for God. And they're not willing to give up people. For God, they're not willing to give up. They sing that song, "I surrender all," and but in their heart or their subconscious, they they say, "I surrender all except this person and this person and this person and this thing and this thing and this thing and this sin and this sin and this sin." But I surrender all to you, Lord. You're lying to God. Amen. Of course. Of course, there are times and seasons in your life that you must keep your car for transportation. But even then, it should be moderate, moderately priced. There's no sense in people having fancy cars or expensive cars when a car that costs $800 or $1,000 is totally Totally sufficient. I paid something like $800 or $1,000 for my car, and it runs beautiful. There's no sense for these expensive cars in a day and a time when people are starving to death and other people, sometimes the same people, sometimes other people who don't even have a Bible or at least don't have an accurate Bible and other needs of this ministry to reach the world with the truth. And there's a famine in the land, a famine of the word of God and a famine of the truth because this ministry is in a famine, a financial financial famine because people would rather go out to have a steak dinner or blow their money on a bunch of this and a bunch of that and carnal things to fill their house up, or uh, this and that and a million examples I could go through the wall. We don't really need new ideals about how to evangelize. What we need is more money, plain and simple, as well as more people to come and labor in person physically for the gospel. Money and servants, those are the two things this ministry needs, not new ideals. 
Amen. In 2008, 2008, I was living at a house that had cheap rent, an acre of land, all fenced, a nice porch, a nice uh, carport, pool table, several computers. Stereos, TVs, entertainment center, all kinds of material possessions, and a really nice kitchen, huge kitchen. But I gave it all up within 30 days, but I sold and gave away everything I owned except only my car for transportation and my bed to lay in and things I would need to survive in a tent. I sold as much as I could, and a lot of stuff I could not sell. I gave away, and the Lord Jesus knows I speak the truth, I gave away for free truckloads of stuff, and even after all that, after all the selling, all the yard sales, and all the truckloads of stuff I gave away, I still left nice, nice furniture sitting in the yard and just left it there and walked away from it. I had a lot of material possessions. I gave all that up to be a disciple of Christ. I don't say these things to boast or to brag, but to set an example that I don't ask you to do anything that I have not myself done. I'm not saying that every one of you must give up everything you own right here, right now. But some of you must start giving up things that you're trying to hold on to that God doesn't want you to have. Some of you are still holding on to financial hope and physical hope when there is no hope and there should not be no hope in those things because it's not God's will and it's the time that you give it up. Amen. And the truth is, for everybody that is involved in this ministry, in this congregation, if not now, eventually you will be given up every material thing you own except for your survival supplies. And those that continue to hold on until that last minute may not be worthy to escape with us, nor of the kingdom. 
when you still have your heart and your mind set on carnal, materialistic, financial things that you need to be given up 10 years ago. Financial things, finances, and material things, they own us. What you own owns you. You are a slave to the things you own. You have to dust them. You have to pay for them. You have to pay tax on them. You have to maintain them. You have to lock them up under lock and key. You have to worry about whether it's going to rust or mold or mildew or get wet or flood or this and that. And it's just hindrances to the spirit. Amen. And I can very, very, very easily understand why Jesus said it is so hard impossible, as almost impossible, as difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom than what it would be for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's almost impossible. And I must, I will be honest with you. I don't mean to hurt anybody's feelings, but I will be honest with you that I I detest I detest the carnality of rich people. And when I say rich people I mean anyone and everyone that has an income of more than $20,000 a year. You may say that's not rich. I say it is. By my standards, by the standards that I have lived in my life, that is rich to me. If you say $20,000 to a person in Nigeria, they're going to say, yeah, you are filthy rich. It's all in the high eye of the beholder. But in the eyes of Jesus, you are rich if you own anything. If you own anything beyond food and clothes, you are rich in the eyes of Jesus, according to Scripture. He said in the book of Timothy, Paul said, to be content with what you have, with the food you have, and the remnant that you have. Anything beyond that is riches. If you own a house, whether you agree or disagree, in my eyes and in the eyes of Jesus, which we share, you are rich. If you own a house, if a house is in your name, you are rich. God's eyes. I don't care if you whether you disagree or not, that is the plain and blanket truth.
And if you own a house in your name, it's going to be extremely difficult for you to give it up. And that's the truth. Because you are a slave to it. And that's the truth. And you will either love the one and detest the other if you try to serve two masters, if you try to serve the carnal things of this world and God at the same time, then you are not going to be able to follow through into the end and actually really make it into the kingdom. And that is why we must have the war to come and destroy and bomb your house. What a beautiful, wonderful day of deliverance that will be when your parents die when your mom dies and you lose your house, that would be your greatest deliverance. When you lose everything that you love, your dog, your cat, your house, your land, your fancy car, your fancy truck, your fancy job, your fancy money, your fancy pride, your fancy that, your fancy stereo, your fancy computers and your phones, when you lose it all, then you can begin, begin to know Christ. Amen. Do you hate me because I have spoken the truth to you? Will you forsake the work of the kingdom and the ministry of Jesus Christ because the truth has been spoken? says right here in verse 33, so then none of you, none of you, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his own possessions. If I want to make it into the kingdom at the first resurrection, I must be willing to give up buildings, houses, monies, careers, people, loved ones, family, and every carnal possession that enslaves me. I must be willing to give it up. And not only willing, I must give it up. The only people that's going to make it into the first resurrection are the people that are left standing with no shirt on their back and probably no shoes and no socks and ripped pants. And maybe a ripped blouse for some women. But if you have anything else more than that, you're probably going to have to go to the second resurrection. You're born with nothing 
on your body, and you, you are born owning nothing. And that's the way you're going to leave this world and enter the kingdom. You must become like children, naked and owning nothing, in order to enter the kingdom. It's so funny to me that people will look at a naked baby and not be grossed out or sickened or think it's sinful or anything about all of their nakedness, but look at a grown naked person and think it's sick and disgusting and sinful. What hypocrisy? You're a hypocrite. You are a hypocrite. A grown man has the same thing as a baby does. A grown woman has the same thing as a baby does. Same thing. I don't care if it is bigger and hairier. It's the same thing. Get over it. Let's go. To Acts chapter 2. Oh. Michael, can you do me a favor? Go lock the door, please. Turn out all the lights from the front. Yes. Through the hallway, too. Acts chapter 2, go to Acts chapter 2, verse 37, verse 37 and 38, these two verses we all should know by heart by now, at least verse 38. If you're not able yet to actually quote every word of verse 38 perfect, I'd really like to encourage you to start memorizing this verse because this verse you need to memorize that it's Acts 2.38. You need to memorize exactly where it's at and every word of this verse because this verse is so fundamental of major, major importance of telling anybody you know but how to get saved, how to get saved. That is so fundamental. It's more important than $10 billion. Amen. $199 billion. This is priceless. And so if you cannot yet quote this, I encourage you to read it every day, for however long it takes. If it takes 10 months, however long it takes to read this every, every day until you're able to quote this perfect. Amen. Verse 
verse 38, that is. But we'll start reading in verse 37. But when they heard this, the sermon of Peter, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brother, what should we do? What should we do? How do we get saved is what they were asking. Sermons should pierce your heart, surfacize your heart. Amen? Sermons are meant to cut you, (laughs) to step on your toes. Sermons are meant to do that. Because then, how are we going to, otherwise, how would we be convicted of our sins if we're not hearing the strong and bold, unfiltered, uncompromised word of God? Amen. And the result of that convicting sermon was, there was like, what should we do? How do we get saved? Verse 38, Peter said to them, repent. Then each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, not in the Trinity, not in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, but in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? For symbolism? No. For the forgiveness of your sins. Now, it says nothing about praying here, but we know it's common sense that while you're repenting, you're praying, amen, and you're not going to get baptized without never saying a prayer ever before you're being baptized. It's just common sense. You're going to pray. But praying is not enough by itself if you're not going to take the next step and then the next step and then the next step. If you pray and then you just stop right there, How is that being committed to Christ? Amen. And then it says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, that is called the promise in many, many, many verses of the Bible. The promise of the Holy Ghost. Acts chapter 1, I think, calls it the promise. Other places throughout Scripture, many places, calls it the promise. But this promise is conditional. It is a conditional promise, and salvation is conditional, absolutely. Many, many people say salvation is unconditional, and they lie right through their teeth because those same people contradict themselves when they say you have to believe that God is real, And you have to believe that Jesus is God, and you have to pray, and you have to accept him as Lord and Savior and as a sacrifice for your sins. You have to do all of this, but salvation is unconditional. And they just listed several conditions. (laughs) It's hypocrisy. It's insanity. Hypocrites. Salvation is conditional if you've got to pray to get it. If you got to believe to get it, if you have to repent to get it, then salvation is conditional. Amen. And if you lose your faith, if you lose your belief, if you lose your repentance, 
then why wouldn't you also lose your salvation? Common sense. Amen. But let's take these things one step at a time here. That word repent. And examining ourselves about whether we are saved. The word repent means turn around. That's literally what it means. We could actually translate this if we wanted to as the words turn around. We could even translate it as change direction. We could even translate it as stop doing what you are doing and start doing things you're not. It's changing your life. It's a turn around. It's a making a uh, 180. Yeah, you turn for Christ. Amen. Turn around. Stop doing what you are doing and start doing right. Stop wickedness and begin to do righteousness. There's a scripture that talks about that as well. So have we done that then? Have we uh, changed our lives, allowed God to change our lives? I believe every one of us could say yes, that is true. Let's back up a little bit more. To back, back up to verse 37 about being pierced to the heart. They were convicted of their sins. We first must be convicted of our sins. That takes absolute truth, unfiltered, uncompromised truth, bold, bold truth to be convicted of your sins. Now, you've heard a lot of bold truth throughout the time you've known this ministry. And hopefully that has convicted you of your sins before now, and then again today, and every sermon, and every Sabbath, and every holy day, and every week, and every month, and every year, continually getting the leavening out of your life. There's a beginning point, but there's also a journey throughout your entire life. And those that endure and stay with the truth and stay with Jesus stay with the work of the kingdom all the way unto the end. Those are the ones that will still be saved. Those that endure unto the end will be saved, Jesus said in Matthew 24. So it starts with conviction. But what does conviction mean? Conviction means that you feel sorry that you have done wrong. You feel guilt for your sins. Amen. You have to first be convicted, which means you feel guilt, you, and you come to the realization, you come to being woke up to the fact that you have done wrong, and you're realizing that, and you're embracing that. There's a lot of people that have a lot of trouble with coming to terms with the fact that they are doing wrong, that they are sinning, such as Christmas, Easter. Sunday worship, the Trinity, preacher of rapture, a million other examples. They cannot come to the wake-up call, the realization that they're in sin. But that's the first step. So how can they say that they're saved when they have not even taken that first step? They've done a prayer thing, but the conviction should come even before the prayer. 
Amen. And even if they've gotten baptized, where is the conviction? And not just conviction for knowing that there is a God, but conviction of what they have done, that they have sinned in their life, that they have done wrong, that the religion they was following was wrong, and that they were blindly following that religion or blindly following that ideology, that way of living. Uh, millions of examples. So we have to come to the realization and confession. We have to confess. Now, even though it doesn't use the word confess in this verse, there's many verses that talk about confessing, and we're going to read a couple of those. We must realize, come to realize that we have sinned, that we're guilty, that we need a Savior, that we need forgiveness because we're guilty. You have to first realize and confess to yourself and to God that you are guilty. Whether we're talking about pagan holidays, false doctrine, or holding on to things that God doesn't want you to have, or guilty of carnal, fleshly thinking, or being overjudgmental or overcondemning, or judging people by a false set of standards, a false holiness. You have to confess that you've done wrong. or neglecting the poor and the needy or the gospel or the work of the kingdom for your own financial ability and keeping. You have to confess you've done wrong. Not paying tithes, you have to confess you've done wrong. Many, many examples. Now, I'd like for you to put a bookmark here because we'll come back to this verse probably. And I have to put a bookmark there. Let's turn to a couple examples of confessing. And let's go right near the book of Revelation. Let's turn to the book of 1 John, which is 1, 2, and 3 John, right before Revelation. 1 John, chapter 1, verse, uh, page number 236 in the 5-volume edition. 1 John 1. Verse 9, we sung this song before services. It was the first song and the last song that we sung today before services. 1 John 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. It's traditional. Amen? We have to do this before he does the other. It's conditional. This verse right here proves it conditional. Amen? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us. He won't forgive us unless we confess. Amen? And righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? If we have said that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So we have to confess to God, which means you got to confess that to yourself. First, you've got to come to that wake-up call, to that realization about yourself. Confess it to yourself. Confess it to God. But now, 
you also got to confess it to humans. James 5, just a few pages, four, five, six pages over to the left. Look at James 5 where it says you got to confess it to humans. James 5, verse 16. James 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Many, many people despise the Catholics so much because of their ton of false doctrines. And I share in that despising the Catholic Church and detesting the Catholic Church. I speak against the Catholic Church. I have written, I have taught against the Catholic Church. You know I have. But to say that we should not confess to a pastor, a minister, because the Catholic Church does it, is not biblical. The standard, the standard about what we should and should not do is not what the Catholic Church does or doesn't do. That's not the standard. And we should not judge any doctrine or any teaching based solely upon the Catholic Church does it, the Catholic Church does it, the Catholic Church does it, therefore we can't do it, we shouldn't do it. That's not the standard. And I feel like I need to say that 10 more times in a row. The standard about whether something is true or correct is not whether the Catholic Church does it or does not. The standard about whether something is true is not whether the Catholic Church does it or does not do it. The standard for correct doctrine is not whether the Catholic Church does it or doesn't do it. The standard is only what does the scriptures teach? Amen. And what is the fruit of it? What is the fruit of a teaching, a fruit of a doctrine? What is the end result of it? Does it have evil fruit or good fruit? What does the Holy Ghost say? These are standards, not what the Baptist Church, Baptist Church does, or what the Jehovah Witness do, or what he does, or what they do, or what he does, or what they do, or what he does, or what she does, or what he does, or what they do, or what they do. That's not the standard. I don't care what nobody else does. What does the Bible say? What is the fruit of it? And what does the Holy Ghost say? Those should be our standards. Amen. It says right here that we should confess one to another. So you can confess to your brother, your sister. I wouldn't confess to no sinner. No, that don't make sense. I wouldn't confess to a Catholic priest. No, he's the worst of the sinners. I wouldn't confess to a Baptist priest or a Baptist preacher. He's the worst of the sinners. I want to confess to family and friends that are lost. They are the worst of sinners. 
But yes, we should be confessing one to another, our brothers and our sisters in this congregation, and true to a true pastor, a true servant of God. Why shouldn't you confess to your pastor who can pray for you and help you and give you scriptures and encouragement and be there for you to, to help you work through that sin? That's my job. So why wouldn't you confess it to me? The scriptures say that we should do this. It has good fruit, and the Holy Ghost agrees. It passes all three standards. It's scriptural. It has good fruit, and the Holy Ghost agrees. Amen. We should confess our sins to one another and pray for one another as well. Amen. When we confess our sins to each other, it is to humble ourselves and to seek help, physical help and spiritual help, emotional help and mental help concerning our sins and weaknesses and transgressions. Amen. This is a family thing. You shouldn't be proudful and try to do it all yourself. It's a family thing. We're all members of one another. You're members of me. I'm members of you. Your weakness affects me. My weakness affects you. When you stump your toe, it has an effect upon the whole body. If you get diabetes, it affects the whole body. If you get sick, it affects the whole body. Your weakness affects me. So why wouldn't you want to admit and confess that weakness? Because it does affect me. It is my business. Your sins are my business. Because you are part of my body and I am part of your body. We belong to one another. We share the same blood, the same mind, the same spirit, the same destiny, the same government, the same family, the same kingdom, the same law, the same commandments, the same Father. Amen. So then go back to your bookmark. Going back to book of Acts 2, verse 38 and 37 about conviction. And if you're convicted, then you must confess. Then verse 38, repent, change your life, turn around, stop doing wrong, start doing right. Amen. If people say that they are saved, but nothing about their life has changed, they're taught the same way constantly all the time, not just a slip of the tongue, but constantly every word, every sentence, every paragraph out of their mouth is a cuss word. Even in front of even even in front of Christians, even in front of children, even in front of women, cussing, and even women cussing, which is so disgusting, it's so nasty and absolutely disgusting when a woman cusses. Disgusting, and and their boyfriends and their husbands. Go along right along with it and don't even bother to correct their their woman 
Don't even bother to correct your woman about her potty mouth, her nasty, filthy, voter mouth, and she needs a good slap in the face. You say, you should never touch a woman, you should never hit a woman. Crap, bull crap. Bull crap. Brittany would testify to to you, I have never slapped her. I have never hit her. I'm not an abusive person. I do not have an abusive personality. But if I had a woman with a potty mouth who cursed in front of children or cursed in front of other women or even in front of other men, and disgraced me that way in public? Yeah. He deserves to be slapped. I don't care whether you agree or not. I have no consideration of your opinion. I don't care whether you agree or not. The truth is the truth. People say that they are saved, but their life has not been changed. And they still think the old carnal way. They think in the way that they have been taught and brainwashed. I'm not a brainwashed person. I'm not a brainwashed man. I don't have to agree with your political correctness and the things that the world has wrongfully taught you. I don't have to agree with those things. I'm an independent person. Independent of that world. Separate from that world. Called out of that world. I don't think the way everybody else thinks. I think the way the Lord does. I think with the mind of Christ. Read the Bible and keep reading it and keep reading it and keep reading it. And you'll start, you'll, you'll, you will, you'll start saying words like this that I speak. Amen. These words that are not in agreement with the way the world thinks. You read the Bible and believe it and allow it to change your way of thinking. You will be detested and hated by your family and your fake friends and your fake family. They will hate you and they will despise you and they will call you evil and demonic just like they did Jesus and all the prophets and all the apostles. And if you are not already hated by your family and your friends, you're not worthy of the kingdom. That's the truth. Your mom does not hate you. You're not worthy of the kingdom because you have not stood up to her enough. If your brothers or sisters or parents or children or friends do not hate you, it's because you have not stood for the truth enough because you care more about what they think than what God thinks. 
If you want to make it into the kingdom at the first resurrection, you have to give up your family, your friends, and the things you own. You have to surrender all to Jesus Christ. You have to abandon your old life. You have to be crucified all the way dead. And become a new person. It's a real sacrifice. You have to give up these people and these things. We're trying to hold on to the world. You're trying to hold on to the world and sinful people should not be held on to. You should close the door to those people and move on toward Christ. Even if you make it into the wilderness, it does not mean automatically that you're going to make it into the first resurrection. I honestly believe that if I find myself in a place of safety in the wilderness with 200 people, that out of that large group, I'm not saying there will be 200, I'm saying if there are 200 with me during the tribulation, that by the time the tribulation is over and the first resurrection comes, I'm very, very, very fearful, very distressed that the number of people that will actually make it in the first resurrection is going to be extremely, extremely, extremely low like probably a handful. But hopefully because of this sermon today, it might be two handfuls. And because of many, many more very bold and very straightforward sermons to come, that hopefully it would be almost everybody or everybody that will be with me will also be in the kingdom. That is my real hope, is that every one of you to become a prophet, for every one of you to become an apostle, for every one of you to become a pastor or a minister or an evangelist or a prophetess or a deaconess or a deacon or something. Because really the truth is the only way you're going to make it at any time into the fullness of the kingdom of eternal spirit is only if you have become mature enough to become a king or a queen, actually a king. The only way you're going to make it into the kingdom is eventually to be able to be a king And at first, the women must learn to be a woman and be submissive at first and for a long time. But eventually, even a woman must give up that femaleness and become a king. 
You have to become a leader. And before you become a leader, you have to first learn to be a servant. And that is why women must first be female. But a female cannot enter the kingdom until they stop being female. Because you must become a leader in order to get into the kingdom. In the kingdom, you won't have a penis or a vagina, either one, in the kingdom. You'll be neither male, female, married, or sexual in the kingdom, and you will not be those things. Amen. So it says in verse 38, you have to repent. You have to change your way of thinking, your heart, and your mind. Keep a bookmark here, and let's go to um, 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. Make sure you have a bookmark there in Acts. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I hope I still have a congregation after today. <laughs> Boy. But the truth is the truth. I'm not going to hold back. I'm not going to hold back. Amen. All out. We're running out of time. I don't know how many more days or weeks or months that I'm going to have internet. If I'm going to teach you, i got to teach you today. Amen. In 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 16, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16, Therefore, from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, we saw him. Yet now... We know him in this way no longer. His flesh is gone. It's not about flesh. The flesh and blood will not enter the kingdom. Amen? Don't be judging people about how much they weigh, whether they're skinny, they're fat, whether they wear a shirt, not shirt, shorts or two skirt, their dress is this color, their dress is that color, their hair is too long, their hair is too short. They're white, they're black, they're yellow, they're red, they're Chinese, they're Jew, they're not a Jew. I don't care, and neither does Jesus, about their clothes and their their dress and their wearing and their, oh, all that stuff. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Passed away, death. Funeral. The old person has died, passed away. Behold, new things have come. Amen. Verse 18. Now, all these things are from Theos, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. North Korea and South Korea just had reconciliation be reunited, to make a peace pact. That's what we need to have with God. 
is that our sins made us enemies of God. We were. Every one of us was an enemy of God. The Bible says that. But now, through the blood of Jesus, that blood is a peace pact. Amen. Reconciliation to bring us, reconcile us into the Father. Verse 19, namely, that Theos was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Amen. Meaning that he is not just saving the world, but he is saving us individually, individually, you and me. Amen. But the point of bringing up this verse is that we must change totally, become dead to who he was, become a new creature, not thinking the way we used to think. Remember the other verse says that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. If you're still thinking today or yesterday the same way you were thinking five or ten years ago, then you're not fully crucified yet. You've got to get fully crucified. Amen? You've got to give up your old carnal, fleshly, the way you're thinking, old doctrines, old way of thinking, and become a, a new thinker. Not thinking the way the world thinks. Amen. And you've got to stop worrying about what people think of you. If I worried about what people thought of me, I'd never be able to teach you anything. Because I'd be too scared of losing tithes and too scared of losing finances. I don't want to lose no person, but I don't care nothing about the money. But I cannot and you should not worry about whether you're going to lose a friend. You shouldn't worry about that. Just lose them. If they are not accepting the truth. Be dead means you have also lost your family. When you die, everybody you knew and everything you was associated with before death, that whole life is gone. That flesh and bloodline is gone. You know what? Once you are born again of the blood of Jesus, you have no flesh and blood parents, or brothers, or sisters. They do not exist in the kingdom. You died to the world of earth and flesh and blood of man. You died to that, or should be now dying to that this day. I hope today is your funeral. That you're going to die to flesh and blood people and family. When you was born of the blood of Jesus, you lost your family and friends. Amen. Some people need to be baptized. 
and be born again with a new family. Truth is, that there was people that took communion with Jesus and the disciples and they were not part of their family. We should not bring damnation upon the rest of the congregation. but should step aside and step back and say, I'm not one of you. I need to be baptized. I need to be saved. That takes courage. I remember at a church many years ago when Jesus sent me to a church that I had never been before. Took me three times going to that church, to that congregation before the pastor would finally let me preach. But that third time I went, he let me preach. Jesus moved. And by the end of that sermon, when I was praying over the pastor's wife, I think it was, or somebody else in her, his family, and I opened my eyes during the prayer and saw him, that he had stepped away from his family member, from me, from the rest of the people that were praying together, and he had stepped out of the way and to the back, to the side, because he knew he was guilty. He knew that if he continued to be right in the midst of this prayer of being planned for his wife or whoever that was, that he would have polluted and defiled the prayer and the action of God. He would have hindered the action of God. He would have hindered her salvation and her deliverance in that miracle that day. Because you you should not touch the holy with unclean hands. Amen. You do not touch the holy of unclean hands. He knew he had unclean hands. It is the appropriate thing to do at Passover. That when you examine yourself and you say that you are guilty and that your hands are dirty, that you should step aside and say, Pastor Tim, I'm not taking communion because I'm guilty and I'm not yet clean. But I want to become clean. And there's the second Passover, the second chance Passover, a month from this Monday. That in this 30 days, that people can be baptized and saved and crucified and born again. I hope in these next 31, 32 days, we will have a funeral and a birth. Amen.
Let's go to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, Galatians, and Ephesians. Ephesians is after Galatians. Chapter 4, verse 11, page 180, 194, page 194. Ephesians 4, verse 11. Ephesians 4, verse 11, all the way down to verse 24. Verse 11, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ, to build the church, until we all, all of us, every one of us, every one of us are clean, every one of us have attained to the unity of salvation, unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the son of Theos to a mature man, to the measure of the maturity which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, that we'll no longer be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, or by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, which takes boldness, we are to grow up in everything into him who is the head, Christ from whom the entire body, being fitted and held together by whatever joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you should walk no longer as the Gentiles or lost people also walk in the fertility or fidelity of their mind being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of Theos because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. In other words, their hearts had not been convicted and their hearts had not been pierced. And they have not had the wake-up call. They have not realized, comprehended their sin. They have not confessed their sins. They have not repented of their sins. They have not been crucified and resurrected with Christ. Verse 19, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to lasciviousness for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Greediness, materialisticism. Lasciviousness means pretty much being uncontrolled, doing whatever they want to do. Verse 20, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If, in, if, in a day, if, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to the formal manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and you lay it all that side, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new person, which in Theos has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Amen. So again, a change of your mind, 
spirit of your mind in verse 23, your mind has to change. Your way of thinking, your carnality has to change. You've got to start thinking spiritually. Amen. Your way of thinking changes when you truly get saved. If you are truly saved, your way of thinking has changed to some degree. And if you have been truly saved, then you must also be growing. Because once you are born, you grow, right? Start as a baby, you get a little bit older, a little bit bigger, a little bit older, a little bit bigger, a little bit older, a little bit bigger, continually, continually. Every few days, weeks, months, and years, continuing to grow in the measure of the fullness of Christ until you get to the fullness. Amen. So at a certain point, you should be able to look at yourself and say that you do think different than what you used to think. I see that in Michael. Amen. I know he thinks a lot different from the way he used to think. Amen. I know I think a lot different than I used to think. And that is a continual process. Amen. And you should continue to evolve in your way of thinking, not stay the same. Just because you've learned a lot of truth does not mean you've learned all the truth. You haven't. Amen. But we need to continually grow, continually accept more truth and more truth and more truth as time goes by. And not only learning more truth, a lot of people are too focused on that. This is not just head knowledge. But also we need, as we continue to grow, gain spiritual understanding. And that is a slower process. It takes a longer amount of time that as you read in Scripture, it's going to come alive to you. But yet, a few months will pass or a year will pass, and then you read a Scripture and it comes alive again. It'll be like a light bulb came on that you just automatically understand that Scripture, even though you've not read it two, three, or a million times. But one day, you read it and it's like, Wow, I understand it now, like never before. And that should happen more and more and more and more as the days and months and years grow by. And that is a evidence, a evidence, not the only evidence, a evidence of true salvation. Amen. The Pentecostals say that speaking in tongues is the evidence, the evidence. The Bible does not say that. The Bible does never, ever, ever, ever say that speaking in tongues is the evidence. In fact, the word evidence is no words in any verse concerning speaking in tongues. But the Pentecostals want to act like there's a verse 
that says this is the evidence. If you have to speak in tongues, you must speak in tongues because that is the evidence that you have the Holy Ghost, that you are saved. And if you have never spoken in tongues, you're not saved. That's what Pentecostals teach. And it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's insanity. And it's totally non-biblical. But speaking in tongues, true tongues, is a evidence, but it's only one of many possible evidences. You don't have to have that particular evidence. You can have a different evidence, such as understanding the scriptures, <laughs> which is more important than blah, 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 blah. You don't understand what I'm saying, do you? How edifying can that be? That's what Paul said. It's not edifying if you speak a million words and nobody understands. Hey, it's good if God wants you to speak in some unknown language. Fine. Let God do what he wants to do. But that's not the only evidence. Amen. Understanding Scripture like never before, that is a pretty good evidence and very edifying. Another evidence is your way of thinking has changed. That God has changed your way of thinking, the way you think. Another evidence is being willing to forsake people, giving up people, and giving up things. Amen. And there are many evidences, but these are a few. Amen. And sometimes the evidence may seem like an evidence, but it's not an evidence. <laughs> because some people can claim or think that they understand when they don't understand at all. And anybody can change their clothes, you know. And anybody can change their doctrine. So you do have to really dig deep. You do have to examine yourself sincerely. You do have to have a close inspection. Amen. And let's go to John 7, book of John 7. And I would like for you to keep your finger there in John 7. Go back to your bookmark in Acts 2. And in verse 38, the last few words, it says, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, right? And then you can take your bookmark away from there and go back to John 7. Talking about receiving the Holy Ghost, John 7, verse 37, John 7, verse 37, and 38, verse 37 says, Now on the last day, the great day of the fiesta, meaning the last, the eighth day of the fiesta of tabernacles, Jesus stood 
and cried aloud, meaning spoke loudly, saying, If anyone is thirsty, thirsty, let him come to me, not to anyone else, not to God in heaven, not to the Father, but to me. He was calling himself God right there. Amen. So I'm going to highlight that in orange. I'm going to start highlighting in orange anywhere where it proves that he's God. I'm going to highlight that in orange. Let him come to me and drink. And then he says, he who believes in me. Not he who believes in the Father, but he who believes in me. He's calling himself God two times here. He who believes in me, as the scripture saith, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39, but this he spoke of the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, from whom, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the ghost was not yet given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So he had to be crucified in order to be ghost, because the ghost is a person that's died, right? But is still alive, it's their soul that is left after they die. So the ghost was not given until he died. And once he died, he breathed on the disciples and they received the ghost. And then days and days after that, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people received the ghost. But right here, it's talking about both the Holy Spirit and the Holy Ghost. Now, even though it says that he was talking about the Holy Spirit. We know also that he's also at the same time talking about the Holy Ghost because before the crucifixion, it is the Holy Spirit that you had to seek because the ghost was not yet given. But once the ghost was given, don't you want it? Amen. Once the ghost was given, once Christ did die for our sins, and yet he came back to life. And in John 14, he said, I will not leave you orphans, which he's calling himself the Father right there. He says, I will come to you again. In John 14, he says that he is going to come back to us and not leave us orphans. And he's talking about the Holy Ghost there. And we are to receive this. And even in Acts 1, he said, wait until you receive this. And then they received it. And it's called the promise. And in Acts 2.38, it says that you're going to receive the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is what we need. Amen. The reason we need the Holy Ghost rather than the Holy Spirit is because the Holy Spirit was upon Moses, David, Elijah, and they were true servants of God, true disciples of God, true prophets of God, holy men. But they were not saved. They were not saved because the ghost was not yet given. God had not been crucified yet. Amen. There was only one door, and that's the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And you've got to go through that door of being crucified and resurrected. You have to go down under the water and come back up under 
from under the water. You have to come up from that. Moses never did that. Now look at Ephesians 4. I think it's, no, not Ephesians 4. Acts 19. Acts 19. Let's go there. Acts 19, verse 1 through 7. Acts 19, verse 1 through 7. <clears throat> verse 1 says, Acts 19, verse 1, it happened that while this man named Apollos was at Corinth, that's not the same Apollos in Revelation 19. It's not talking about the Antichrist. It's not talking about a demon. It's just a person that had this name because it was the Roman Empire and, the, and a lot of people had these pagan names and different names. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, Apollos, passed through the uh, passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus. Ephesus is one of the seven churches that the letters were written to in Revelation two and three. So Paul went to that church, came to Ephesus and found, or that town at least, and he found some disciples. And he said to them, "Did you receive the Holy Ghost when you believed?" And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Ghost. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paulos said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, believing in Christ, that is Jesus, and when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. And verse 6, and when Paulos had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came to them. And they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And they were all about 12 men. Though Pentecostals would say, see, that's the evidence. They got baptized. They got saved. And they spoke in tongues immediately. That proves that they received the Holy Ghost. Well, yeah, it does prove it. But there are other examples in the Bible where people got baptized and they did not speak in the Holy Ghost tongues. But they still received the Holy Ghost. Amen. They were still saved. Amen. So we cannot say that this is the only evidence when there's other scriptures that says nothing about people speaking in tongues when they got baptized or received the Holy Ghost. Now, also in verse 6, it says that Paul laid hands on them. Now, if we're baptizing in person, yeah, that must be done if we're baptizing in person. But, hey, back then, the only people that was being baptized is only when the, the apostles and prophets and people were uh, traveling and evangelizing and preaching and, and people were getting saved wherever they could travel. But in our modern day and time, 
I just simply don't have the ways and the means of traveling across the world. Amen. And if we are spiritual beings who are faithful, who realizes the power of God and realizes that God is where you are and where I am. Amen. That God is not a million miles away. God is right here inside of me and right there where you are, regardless of your location. And it is God that saves and not me. It is God that baptizes, not me. And I baptize in his name, meaning his authority. Amen. Then realizing all of this, being people of faith, we should not be legalistic or carnal thinking to think that I have to lay hands on you in order for it to take. There's no magic in my hands. It is not my blood, my flesh, my bones, my eyes, my ears that saves you. It is the Spirit of God, the Holy Ghost, that saves you. Amen? So it makes no difference whether I truly lay hands on you or not. As long as you go down under the water and come back up, as long as it's done in Jesus' name, as long as it's not done in the Trinity formula, as long as it's done by a true minister of God and not a Babylonian fake, not how can you truly get baptized by a lost person doing it? No. First time I got baptized, that's the way it was done. But after that, when I finally, finally did find a person who had accepted that God is not a trinity but one and that baptism is required for salvation and that the seventh day and holy days is required for salvation and he agreed on all that and he was truly baptized, I said, okay, turn around, you baptize me now. And I got baptized because living for the rest of my life thinking that I was baptized by a person who keeps Christmas and Easter was not sufficient for me. Even though I was saved, I had the Holy Ghost. There's biblical examples of people receiving the Holy Ghost before baptism. It happens sometimes. But I still had to be baptized, and I still had to be baptized by someone in the truth Amen. So it's okay to baptize over the internet, over the telephone, realizing that we are an international ministry and not with the ability to travel the world uh, in flesh and in person. But rather, but rather it is the living ghost of Jesus Christ that saves and not my physical presence. Amen. But notice here these people had been baptized by a true prophet of God, by John, the baptizer. Hey, that was a true prophet of God, a true man of God. 
And they had gotten baptized, not in the Trinity. They had gotten baptized by a man that kept the seventh day and the holy days. John knew the truth, kept the truth, preached the truth, accepted Jesus and Jesus only. But these people still had not received the Holy Ghost. Why? Because they didn't know there was a Holy Ghost. And Christ had not yet died when they got baptized by John. Right? They had gotten baptized by John. Not really into Christ Jesus. John's baptism was not sufficient. It had to be after. Not well. You know what? It's possible. It's possible to be saved even before Jesus died, because Jesus Himself sent His disciples out, baptizing in His name. Because the truth is, the very moment that Jesus was born, the church, the very moment that Jesus came into this world, that God came into this world, the very moment that God took upon the flesh of man and the blood of man upon himself, and he put himself, his spirit, into mankind, salvation became available at that very moment when he tabernacled among us, salvation became available. Amen. And those people got baptized by Jesus and his disciples before he died. But even then, even then, even though they were saved by the baptism in Jesus before he died, they still had to receive the Holy Ghost after he died. I guarantee you all of the disciples were baptized by Jesus, even if the Bible doesn't say it. The Bible never says that Jesus baptized Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It doesn't say it. I guarantee you it happened. I guarantee you it happened. And I guarantee you that even though they were saved when they were baptized by Jesus, they still had to receive the Holy Ghost after his resurrection, when he breathed upon them. Mm-hmm. Amen. And even after he was resurrected, can you find any words where Matthew was baptized? No. Mark? No. Luke? No. John? No. But you know they were. Not everything was written. Not everything was written. And you don't have to read it in the letter of the law to believe it. So many people always, Pastor Tim, where's the verse for that? Where's the verse for that? I'm like, I don't have a verse for it. But I know it because God has given me the understanding. Amen. Amen. There's a whole lot more scripture that exists that has not written. There is scripture that exists that has never been written. Because the word of God is a living word, and the word of God is in our hearts and in our minds. Jesus said, I am the resurrection. Amen. In our hearts and in our minds, you don't have to read it on paper. 
to know and understand the spiritual things of God. All you need is the mind of God. All you need is the Holy Ghost. Amen. Praise Jesus. And that's why you can't get very deep going to a church of Babylon because even the Pentecostals don't have the Holy Ghost. When they teach only from what is written or from their personal lives, but not from the Holy Ghost. Because none of those will ever tell you any of the things I've said today. So my question before I ask you, I will teach a little bit more that the Holy Ghost and the Holy Spirit is the very same Spirit. The Bible says that we are all born into one Spirit. We're saved by one Spirit. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Spirit. That we have different offices, different administrations, different gifts, but all the same Spirit. There's only one Spirit, not two, not three. There's not two beings, not three beings. There's not two Spirits. There's not three persons. There's not two persons. There's not three persons. There's two manifestations. In heaven, you do have the Father and the Son sit beside each other. You do have that. That's manifestations. But we have to be spiritual thinking, understanding that that is not two people, two persons, or two beings, or two souls, or two spirits. That is God who separated himself, cut himself in two. God did cut himself in two in order for our salvation. Amen. So the Holy Spirit and the Holy Ghost are one person, one being, and one spirit, but they are cut in two. The Holy Spirit is the part that sits with the Father, and the Holy Ghost is the part that sits with the Son, Son of God and the Son of Mankind. But they're one person, one spirit, one soul, and one God. But only through the ghost and the blood of Jesus, that part of the two parts of the one God, only through the blood and ghost of Jesus, and you be saved because he had to die for us. That part died for us, not the other part. But that part that died for us is God. He is Theos. He is the Father. He is the Creator. Amen. Do not stumble upon these things. Be spiritual thinking, realizing that God exists throughout the universe. He's not six foot tall. Amen. So now I ask you, have you received the Holy Ghost of God? Have you been crucified? Have you been resurrected? Have you been changed? Amen. Amen. You can have all the head knowledge in the world and still not 
be saved. You can embrace every one of my doctrines and still not be saved. You have the Holy Ghost of Jesus. You say, well, the Bible says I was baptized. I must have the Holy Ghost. It's a promise. But again, it's a conditional promise. It's a conditional promise. Yeah, you are promised to receive it if your repentance is real and if you have been truly baptized and if you truly believe. But even then, God, being God, not being limited by rules. God is not limited by his own rules, nor the rules of man. God has the right to say, no, I will not yet give you this Holy Ghost because you've not repented enough or you're not ready for it yet, or whatever reason. God is God. He is boss. Amen. But we cannot assume, we cannot assume that we have received the Holy Ghost just because we followed the steps. Has your heart been changed? Has your mind and your life been changed? Now, I'm not, I'm not expecting or requiring that people at this point of time be perfect. I push people to be perfect because you've got to be to enter the kingdom. When I say perfect, I don't mean perfect in every sense of the word. I don't remember I don't I don't mean perfect as in you've got to be able to calculate twelve times twelve or ten times eleven or nine times seven. I don't care about those things. I'm not talking about that kind of perfection. And I'm not talking about perfect where you spell every word perfect or pronounce every word perfect or that your body is perfect, that you're in perfect shape. I'm not looking for any of these type of perfections. When I say you've got to be perfect to enter the kingdom, I mean sinless, and I'm not there yet. But we should not use that as an excuse. We should never use that as an excuse. We should never say I'm not perfect as an excuse for our downfalls and our faults and our sins, that is not a reasonable or acceptable excuse. Amen. But I do press people for to strive forward perfection of being becoming sinless and fully mature and responsible in order to get into the kingdom. Absolutely. I'm not there yet. You're not there yet. But we must continue to press forward that mark. Amen. So I'm not asking when you take the communion that you have to be perfect yet. I know that none of us are. But what I'm asking is this. Are you saved? Amen. And even if you are saved, are you in the center of God's will? Amen. You can be truly saved and yet, at the same time, for one reason or another, you have moved out of the center of God's will, or you never was in the center of God's will, even though he did 
give you his Holy Ghost. He truly did give you that, and you are truly saved. That doesn't automatically mean that you're in the center of his will. You could still be rebellious. Moses was rebellious at times. Daniel was, David was, Jeremiah was. All the men of God were rebellious at times and out of the will of God at times. And you can still take the cup of communion even if you're outside of God's will, but you need to at the same time get yourself aligned. This is a good time of year to not only examine yourself about salvation, but how you can adjust yourself, how you can get more into the center of his will, how you can grow, how you can get uh, more mature, more right, more perfect, and get that leavening out of your life because it's not just a one-day feast. It's an eight-day feast here that we're going to be celebrating. We're going to have Passover, then the seven days of unleavened bread. So it's not only about the first day. Let's not focus only on communion. Let's not focus only on Passover. But let's also observe the seven days of unleavened bread, which means after you get saved, after you accept the blood and body, after you take the communion, after you are saved, after you do receive the ghost, then it's a continual process. It's continually, every day, every week, every month, every year, every decade, continuing to try to look for the crumbs, the hidden crumbs, the secret crumbs, the secret sins, the subliminal sins, the sins that are deep in your heart and your mind. You've got to cut your heart in two. You've got to get divided into just like God has for himself and for us. You've got to split yourself apart and get in there and have surgery on yourself. Amen. You've got to figure out what needs surgery. Amen. Fix your spiritual eyesight. Fix your spiritual ear, hearing. Fix if you're deaf of hearing or blind spiritually, have the Holy Ghost to have surgery on you and fix these things today, tomorrow, the next day, and through this week and throughout the rest of your life. Continuing to get the the spiritual fat and spiritual skin off from you. Amen. We have to shed the skin of carnality. Amen. Praise Jesus. So, I believe one more thing, that concerning the delay of why we are not in the tribulation yet, is because God is so patient with us knowing that we need more teaching more instruction, more correction, more chastisement. Hey, the tribulation itself will be a lot of chastisement and correction. But if you're not going to have me there to scream at you and yell at you and step on your toes and break your bones for you spiritually, (laughs) then who's going to do it? So God is, I'm very, very, very confident, delayed the tribulation so I can yell at you a little bit more. <laughs> Ain't you so happy? Ain't you so glad?
Well, I've got a couple of new articles coming up soon. They will be a test for everybody. Amen. And reformatting the website. Lots of work to do. Well, I hope everybody will have a good night to be much observed. Tuesday night. Hope everybody will have a very blessed and edifying communion on Monday night. We'll be having special services on Tuesday. Bright and early here. Bright and early. At least Michael. <laughs> he <laughs> used to getting up. Yeah. <laughs> I know grudgingly. Yeah. Not really willingly. But out of necessity, you're used yeah. to getting up. I'm uh, up in the middle of the night anyway. I've got like three alarm clocks next to my bed. But me, I'm not used to getting up that early. So I, I think a lot of people are a lot more accustomed than than I am to getting up that time in the morning. It's a shame. It is a shame. I confess it. Confess my sins and my faults and my weaknesses to you. But I'm asking for your prayers that my time clock and my mannerisms about getting to bed and being able to sleep and being able to get up at a decent and respectable time in the morning, that these things will improve, that I will improve on this. Please pray for me about that. And it'll be at the night, um, Tuesday night, in the time zone of Australia and Korea. So it'll be early morning on Tuesday here, but it'll be like something like uh, 9, 9.30, something like that over there in that part of the world. And so it would be during the night to be much observed for them that they would be listening to the live broadcast. So we'll be having services then going back to bed (laughs) (laughs) And, and, and then coming back together that evening for our celebration. Amen. And we're going to put up some balloons and some decorations. Amen. Have a little party and a little feast and our beautiful wife, Brittany, be cooking for us as usual. And and we'll be very, very, very grateful and thankful for the work that she does for the kingdom, for me, for you, for this congregation. Amen. Um, remember, remember AJ, brothers AJ. Uh, Please remember his ministry blog and his evangelism and his family, his finances, his health. Remember Brother A.J. in all things. Remember Jonathan in prison, a true brother who observes the seventh day and the holy days, has grown in the truth in the time that I've known him and been writing to him. Uh, please pray for Brother Jonathan who is in prison for his protection, God's favor upon him, and for his ministry with other prisoners. A very difficult thing to be in the midst of thousands of demons in a large prison surrounding you at all times, very vulgar, 
and blasphemous. How do you deal with that as a man of God in the middle of that chaos? Got to be very, 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 very difficult. Please pray for Jonathan. Pray for Brother Nicholas, who's only 16 years old, living with his parents, rebellious, wicked parents that are in Babylon that restricts him and being under his parents' house there's only so much that he can do. Remember Brother Nicholas in prayer. Remember Kiki and Lisa. Remember Michael. He's not thrown up since he's been here, so that's good. <laughs> Amen. He might leave with broken toes, but he's not thrown up. <laughs> and um, if there's anybody that listens to services that I'm not realizing that you're listening, please contact me and let me know that you're listening in order to encourage this congregation. Uh, let us know that you're listening so that we can help you more and pray for you. Amen. We want to reach out to you and help you. Amen. Let's all be family. There's no reason, there's no need to hide. Amen. Contact us. Let us know you're listening. Let us know that the Word of God is alive in you. Amen. Praise Jesus. Don't let your light be hidden under a bush. Let it, Let it shine on a hill. Amen. Come out. Come out wherever you are. <laughs> Doors wide open. Amen. <laughs> and we would love to have more people come and join us here in worship. Amen. Worship Jesus. He is worthy of all worship, praise, and honor. Amen. Praise Jesus. Pray for the new articles. Pray for the reformatting of the website. Pray for the Alpha and Omega Bible. There's a lot to pray about. Amen. Pray, pray, pray. Any questions about Passover or the Days of Unleavened Bread, please email me or, or talk to me after services. I'll go ahead and uh, conclude this. Thank you for listening. We love you very much. I hope that you have a good day and a good fiesta. In the name of Jesus Christ, so be it. Amen. Praise Jesus. And the whole congregation said, Amen. Amen.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.